Brother Chairman and our dear brethren and sisters and our Lord Jesus Christ and our dear young people. We would just like to refer to yesterday's study together for a few moments before we proceed. Because, brethren and sisters, we know, we know because Romans chapter 4 tells us it's true, that Genesis chapter 15 and at verse 6 when Abraham was invited to look at the panoply of heaven and was told, so shall thy seed be, we know that that was his baptism. Because that was the time when he was called a righteous man because of his faith. And it's the first time that that was done to Abraham. And so, brothers and sisters, following on from that thought and taking it down into our lives, what really does happen when a candidate who loves the word of righteousness passes through the waters of baptism? Well, it's no different, brothers and sisters, from what God did with Abraham. He didn't just make a statement over Abraham, he made a prophecy. And when the candidate comes up out of the water, having had righteousness imputed unto him or her by their faith, God says, this is a righteous person. And he makes a forecast. And he makes a forecast, if the baptism is valid, that this person will walk in the truth. Who would dare say that? And if the person walks in the truth, who is vindicated? It is altogether the one who made the proclamation. It is altogether the one who made the forecast, brethren and sisters, who is vindicated at every step of the faithful steps of that individual. And that's why we know, brethren and sisters, that the Apostle Paul in his exhortation to us to do all to the glory of God, he's on the right track. Because he combines that aspect of his teaching with the justification which God is prepared to give to a person who implicitly believes him about everything he does and everything he can do. And that is the passage, that is the way that God inducts a man into his service. Or a woman, of course. And it is every step of the way, just as the Lord Jesus Christ said at his baptism, Thus it becometh us to fulfil all righteousness. And he was talking about his father and himself. That together in a journey, both before of course and after, all righteousness would be fulfilled. And that was the only way that ever a man was going to break the barriers of heaven and enter into heaven itself. There to appear in the presence of God for us. And so, brothers and sisters, we need to understand, especially young people who may be considering this step in their life, it places upon our God, shall we say, a great responsibility? 
Shall we say, brothers and sisters, that at that very time that a candidate comes up out of the waters of baptism, that there is a judgment made and God either does or does not say those words over the candidate? It is an extremely serious thing to bring the great God and the majesty of heaven into connection with ourselves. Not that it's that way, brothers and sisters, it's him that's bringing us into connection with himself. And he is pleased to utter that sort of statement over us, which really turns out to be a forecast. And he can do that on one basis, because he, if it is really genuine, he who has begun a good work in us, will complete it at the day of account. And therefore, in every step of the way, brothers and sisters, it is God manifestation, not human salvation, that is the great purpose of the eternal spirit. And so, having just referred back to the justification by faith, with which Abram and all his seed have been favoured and will be favoured until the time comes, when there's no need for it anymore at the end of the thousand years. But that's what God does and that's what he is prepared to do, brothers and sisters. Just think of the condescension of the God of heaven and earth to do that. The tremendous condescension of the great majesty of the heavens to make a proclamation like that over a mortal sinful man. That's the favour of God, brothers and sisters. That's the love of God. That's the mercy of God. And there can be no other way by which it can be attained in our present generation and in our present pilgrimage toward the kingdom of God. It can only be attained upon the basis of what we believe. And God is extremely fussy about what we believe. He's left it on record for us. He does not want us to be selective about that word. He wants us to take it all on board. And who are we, brethren and sisters, to grade the importance or otherwise of that word? It's all been given by the same divine and infallible hand, the divine and infallible wisdom proceeding forth from him which comes down from above and is first purifying, then peaceable and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. That's telling us something about our God, isn't it, brothers and sisters, in James chapter 3 and verse 17? That he is the source of wisdom and if we ask nothing wavering, he will deliver and he will do it how? He will do it without partiality and without play acting. That's our God. There's a singularity of intention and of purpose with him in everything that he does. And so now we return back to verse 1 of James chapter 3. And if we were to ask maybe even some of our older Sunday school scholars what this chapter is all about, I'm sure a lot of them could tell us. It's really quite a devastating chapter, isn't it? 
a devastating chapter. But brethren and sisters, on the other hand, on the other hand, brethren and sisters, it is actually the most lovely chapter about the tongue that you could ever read. Because it tells us something about the tongue that we don't very often concentrate upon. The people that know, and they say they're experts, tell us that if we're driving down the highway at 100 kilometres an hour and there is some sudden danger looms up before us, it takes us 0.4 of a second for our eyes to give the message to the brain and to translate them down into the foot and onto the brake pedal. How long, brethren and sisters, do you think it takes for a very unkind expletive to slip out of here? How long, brethren and sisters, before it's too late? It couldn't be very long. And so what we are seeing in that, brethren and sisters, is this, that James chapter 3 is not really all about the tongue. Because really, the whole Word of God is not designed to affect external organs. It's designed to affect the brain. That will affect the external organs. But if the brain is not affected, if it does not have on it engrafted the Word of Wisdom, then the hands will never do anything right. The tongue will never do anything right. It won't matter. So this chapter, brothers and sisters, we need to see is really all about the brain. And so in verse 1 it says, and this is one of James's appeal. He appeals over and over and over again. My dear brethren, my beloved brethren, my brethren, be not many masters, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. Now what he's doing for us here, brethren and sisters, is introducing to us a subject that needs to be considered more and more and more as we get closer to the darkness that will swamp the earth just before the Son of Man comes. And he's talking about the responsibilities of teachers. And brethren and sisters, don't think, don't think that this is being talked about by somebody who does everything that James says. But I'm sure we can relay what James says and what other parts of the Word of God say. Be not many masters. And the word for masters is the Greek word, and I won't say it right like Brother Tony. Brother John can say it right, but I can't. But it's didaskalos. Might be somewhere near the mark, I don't know. And basically it means an instructor. Be not many instructors. So he's introducing to us the idea of being an Instructor. Well, what would an instructor do? It's obvious what he will do. 
He will instruct. He will teach. He will edify. He may exhort. He may rebuke. He may do all sorts of things. But everything an instructor does is with his tongue, which of course is going to be moved by the brain. And it will therefore depend upon what is in the brain as to what comes out of the tongue. And so we'll spend a few moments talking about feeding a spiritual mind. And sometimes you will hear from the platform somebody make a joke. Does that feed the spiritual mind? Sometimes, brothers and sisters, we will hear all sorts of little anecdotes and some of them might be quite valid. And some of them may be designed to feed the spiritual mind. But we will always find that the best anecdotes are in this book. The best stories are in this book. The best pictures are in this book. The best method of teaching will be in this book because it is filled up with pure words. Because the psalmist says, the words of Yahweh are pure words. And they have been, as it were, says the psalmist in chapter 12 and verse 6, he says they have been purified seven times so that they are words that Yahweh has chosen and he has given so much care to those words, brethren and sisters, that it's like as if the metallurgist had taken those things and he's got them in his little crucible and he's heated them up to gross heat seven times, scraped off all the dross and left them totally and absolutely pure. And it's a wonderful thing, brethren and sisters, about our God that our particular kind of mentality is made so that those words can fit into it. That's how he made us in the beginning. And that ability, brethren and sisters, while it may have been diminished because of some other factors that came into us because of sin, that ability hasn't changed. The likeness to the Elohim has not changed. We are still able to receive the divine words in which and through which divine ideas come to us. And James is saying, don't be many masters. What does that really mean, brothers and sisters? Does that mean that we should have an ecclesial policy that says, give everyone a go? That everybody that passes through the waters of baptism, we want to see him up on the platform? It doesn't, brethren and sisters. It means, be not many masters. Because it's a wonderful thing, it's a strange thing, isn't it, that God is actually able to supply from ecclesia to ecclesia servants who actually have an ability that is in the field in this area? It's amazing, isn't it? 
that God is actually able to supply brethren who have an ability and that is no glory to them and it's no dishonour to somebody who may not have it. But God is trying to tell us that he wants to set order in the ecclesia. And so James is saying, be not many masters. And then he adds to us this, brethren and sisters, this great warning, brethren in particular, he says, because we might fall into greater condemnation. And the gravity of the responsibility of teachers, brethren and sisters, is really something that we need to think about very sincerely. Very carefully we must consider that. We are all at about this same time, brethren and sisters, conducting ecclesial ballots. How do you, what is the, what is the criteria by which you put a tick on a paper when you send in your ecclesial ballot? I get along with him well. Yeah, I think he should be on the platform. He's a nice but oh, No, I don't really like him. I don't get on with him too well. Leave him off. Brethren and sisters, that is not right. It's probably not even right that we have ballots because it always degenerates just into a vote of popularity. Just about always. But we've got to be different from that. And we've got to give earnest heed to what the Word of God says in all of its parts so that the order of God that he has established in meetings might be able to go forth. Because the common usage of the figure that the Apostle Paul uses, you don't put your feet up where your mouth should be and you don't put your mouth where your feet should be. And now James is giving to us, brethren, the great exhortation about anybody who wants to be an instructor. And what is it? And this is what he's saying. He listened to what his half-brother said in Matthew chapter 5, 6 and 7. And he extracted out of that, brethren and sisters, this little principle that the more open and prominent a job is, the more it will be discounted in value. The more open and prominent a job is, the more it is going to be discounted in value if it's done with any other intention than to spiritually edify the flock if it is done, brothers and sisters, on any other basis than total and absolute integrity to what God says. And if we can't find where he says it, yes, be quiet. Because it's very, very easy for something that is not in this word to slip out uncontrolled. It's so very easy. Brothers and sisters, I can tell you, I've done it on the platform. And something will come into your mind as you are talking about something you know is right and it will slip out and you haven't even had time to weigh it up. 
And I know I've done it. I've fallen foul of it. And so we must give the more earnest heed to what this word says. Now, brothers and sisters, how are we going to do, how are we going to do that, brethren? Well, the only way we can do it, the only way we can do it is the way the scriptures tell us to do it. This book is bred from heaven. It's proper diet. It is pure words. And the psalmist in Psalm 190, 19 and verse 30 says that it is the entrance of thy words which give light. It, he doesn't say it is the entrance of thy word which gives light because God's word is the whole lot. He's telling us that we've got to be very specific about the words of it. And therefore, brethren and sisters, we must find out what those words mean. Now we would expect, would we not, that if God wants us to feed on this word, that if he wants us to be taught about this word, all we'd have to do is get up and read it. Not so. The bread from heaven which came down in the wilderness, brethren and sisters, for nearly 40 years was something that the children of Israel were told to go through a process of preparation before they took it into their bodies. And they were told in Numbers chapter 11 that they were to make the word stand upright. How do we make the word stand upright? Well, brethren and sisters, the way we make the word stand upright is to make absolutely sure that we have listened to what God has said and we are transporting the meaning that he has. And that will depend, brothers and sisters, very much on what kind of translation we use because there's two different methods of translation that the translators use. One of them is called the formal equivalence method and that is based upon the method of exploding every word in the, tra- in the original manuscripts as close as they can find them. They explode every word and build back up a picture from each of the words that are there. The other one, which is called the dynamic equivalence method, they read through the, the manuscripts and they say, well, I think that means this to me. So they write it in. And it's a wonderful truth, brothers and sisters, it's a wonderful truth that our AV is one of only three, I think, of the translations of the Bible that have been based upon the formal equivalence method. All the others are based upon the dynamic equivalence method. So really, it's what they think is the message that they write onto the page. Whereas in our authorised version, it's not so. They were as faithful as they could be to find out the meanings of the words and they gradually built up a picture from those word meanings and put it in our authorised version. It's a far better method, brethren and sisters. You see, God says, my words are pure words. He didn't say, my ideas 
I will write upon this. He did write his ideas, brethren and sisters, but it's the words that he used to build up those ideas that are very essential to us. And so we have to be careful, brethren, that we spend adequate time finding out. And we cannot ever afford to go to the Bible, brethren and sisters and young people, we cannot ever afford to go to the Bible and think that we know what it's going to tell us. Because we'll never be listening to the pure words if we do that. There's only one way and we need to go to the Bible and tell ourselves every time we open it up that we know absolutely nothing about this Bible. And the trouble is, brothers and sisters, with preconceived ideas is twofold. Preconceived ideas will make us find what we thought we were going to find and it will always, almost certainly stop us from seeing something that is there. And neither of them might be right. Now we, we talk about, we go to our interested friends and we say, now you have to be open-minded. Brethren and sisters, I would venture to say we are about the most close-minded people when it comes to reading the Bible. Because we know what it's going to say. Don't we? Or do we? Well, instructors, if you want to be an instructor, that means that you will spend a very large amount of time in preparation. I stand up here, brothers and sisters, and I tell you straight, I've given very little time in preparation for this Bible school. Certainly not in the last four or five months. But I have done some before. And we need, brethren and sisters, more and more and more to spend more time over the Bible. And the best, the best study we will ever do is by going to the Bible and then going out for a walk. And then going into some secluded spot where there's no influence, there's no affects upon your brain and you can think and you can think, and you can think. And my experience, brothers and sisters, is nothing. But I can tell you that the Bible comes together when you think about it. It doesn't come together when you're sitting over your computer and it doesn't come together very often when you're just pouring over a concordance. It comes together when we are making the word perpendicular. We're making it upright. We are learning to rightly divide it. We are learning to put this part together which, mean, which is meant to be put together with that part. And there are an awful lot of things in the Bible, brethren and sisters, that look as though they ought to be connected together on the surface. And they won't be. And there are an awful lot of things in the Bible that don't look as though they will be connected together and with earnest consideration you'll find they do and they jump into life. And it's a really exciting thing to see that. And that's the kind of thing that we need to indulge in more and more and more, brothers and sisters, as the darkness of the times of the Gentiles encroaches about us. And what we don't need, what we don't need is fairy stories. What we don't need is moralising. 
What we need, brethren and sisters, is instruction out of this word. What we need is brethren who are prepared to give the time, to, to, to devote the time to earnest consideration of this word so that they might compare every scripture with other scripture and that they might gradually build up in their minds a picture of what it's all about. And we're not doing that, brethren. We're not doing it. We might find out a bunch of facts on our computer in two seconds flat, but we might never put them together in the right collated order. And the computer won't do that for us. And it's only an earnest mind that hungers and thirsts after righteousness that will ever be filled. And that's the thing that James is exhorting us, brothers and sisters, because if we say the wrong thing from up here, there's 140 people out there who might walk out the door and say, that's okay, that's okay, that's okay. Brethren and sisters, you have to be like the Bereans. We all have to be like the Bereans. We have to search the scriptures faithfully, diligently, intently. We have to lift our minds up, as Brother Thomas used to say, and go into within the veil. And if we get in within the veil, we will have no time to plot mischief or play the fool. Because the earnest business of the day will be making our brain right so that our tongue might say the right thing. And it hasn't got much time to make a decision between there and there. It's got to be prepared. Brethren and sisters, one of the prime things, brethren, one of the first things that an instructor needs to be is not just humility, it's meekness. That's what James says that we ought to be able, in verse 13, who is a wise man and endued with knowledge among you? Let him show out of a good conversation his works with meekness of wisdom. Brethren and sisters, do you want to try out an instructor? Do you want to try out one of your teachers? Well, after he's given a talk one time, you go up to him and say, Brother, have you ever considered this? This might be added to what you've already said. You watch the reaction. Watch the reaction. See if that person can actually take on board with any sort of enthusiasm something that he's missed out. And you'll find out whether he's got meekness or not. You'll find out whether he's able to be taught or whether he thinks he's the... He is the oracle. You'll find out very smartly. And you find it out, brethren and sisters, not by what he does with his hands, not by what he does with his legs or his feet or any other part of his body. You'll find out by what he does with his tongue. And you will find out, you will find out, brethren and sisters, where a man stands a hundred times faster by what he says than what he does. And don't ever think that what comes out of that tongue is not work. It is the best work that a man will ever do. It is the best work that any one of us will ever do. Is the preparation of a mind so that it can speak words of truth 
words of uprightness, words of rebuke, words of comfort, words of strength, words of edification. Brethren and sisters, there is no greater work than that ever a man will do than what comes out of his tongue. And it's the only kind of work the effects of which or which in itself can ever be taken into the kingdom of God. It is the only kind of work that can be taken into the kingdom of God because the tongue of the wise is health and death and life are in the power of the tongue. Brethren and sisters, we don't know a lot about the Lord Jesus Christ but we know one thing about him and that's this that Adonai Yahweh gave him the tongue of the learned and he gave to him the tongue of the learned so that he might know how to give a word in season to him that is weary. And now we want to read a few verses about what James says about the tongue. Knowing, brethren and sisters, that we shall receive the greater condemnation because we stand up in a prominent and open place. It's not a good thing, brethren and sisters, to be popular. And that doesn't mean to say, brethren, that we have to go out of our way to say things that will make us unpopular. But it's not a good thing to be popular. Because when you're carried along on the, on the mass of the people, that's the time, brethren and sisters, when the head gets a little bit bigger than it ought to be. That's the time, brethren and sisters, when you've got your eyes up there and there's a footstool down there and you go tumbling head over turkey. It's a very dangerous thing to be popular. Do you think, brethren and sisters, that the prophets were ever popular? Do you think the Lord Jesus Christ was ever popular? Did they hang on their words and say, oh, we're just waiting for the next word to pour out of their mouth? We learned about them in Ezekiel chapter 33, didn't we? Oh, yes, a lot of people said that's fantastic. But they weren't popular men. And so we read in verse 2, Knowing, brethren, that the more open and prominent a position is, the far more likely it is to be directly discounted in value before the king who will weigh all things righteously. 4 verse 2 says, In many things we offend all. Now that doesn't actually mean that in many things we offend everybody. It really ought to have the words reversed, those last two words, and it means for in many things we all offend. And remember what the the wise man Solomon says in the Proverbs, he says, in the multitude of words, there lacketh not sin. Just because we talk a lot, we're going to make a mistake. And I would venture to say, brothers and sisters, that every time anybody ever gets up here on the platform, we probably always <coughs> say something wrong. We'll find that out one day. Everybody might say it's okay. But they're not the judge, finally, as to what comes out of our mouth. It's the judge of all the earth who's going to make that decision. In many things we all offend. And he's talking about instructors, he's talking about teachers. And then he goes on to say, 
if any man offend not in word, the same is a perfect man and able to bridle the whole body. This is talking about Jesus Christ, brethren and sisters. This is talking to us about our Lord Jesus Christ because he is the only man, the only man in all of history who has always had his body under control. And what is the key to the success of keeping the body under control? It's his tongue. It's not the other way around. He says, if any man offend not in word, if his tongue is perfect, his body will be perfect. He does not say, if the body is perfect, the tongue will be perfect. Can you see what he's saying, brothers and sisters? He's saying that the index, the index to telling whether a man is good or not, is what he says. And you can tell that in five minutes flat. When somebody stands up before you, brothers and sisters, and he has a few jokes and he cracks a few funnies and he makes a few anecdotes, mostly about himself, is he pandering to the flesh or is he crucifying it? We can tell very quickly, can't we? We can tell very quickly where he stands. But brothers and sisters, he might be he might be the very best worker in the ecclesia as we normally characterise works. He might be there at every busy bee. He might be there at every leaflet distribution. He might be there at every meeting. He might be there helping every widow. He might be doing all sorts of things. But he can do it with a wrong intent. He can do it for his own self-aggrandisement. But brethren and sisters, if he speaks the truth and if he speaks the truth for the right reasons, there's one person he's vindicating and it's his God. The same as if he does all those things for the right reasons, he's vindicating his God. But brethren and sisters, you can easily hide your motive in things that you do. Can't you? but you can't hide the content of what comes out of your mouth. And it is, says James, the index. And then he says, look, have a look at the illustration of this in verse 3. Behold, we put bits in the horses' mouths that they may obey us and we turn about their whole body. Here is a man, and this is the illustration, here is a man riding a horse and by some external means, he's trying to control the mind of the horse. Is he successful? Has he really controlled the brain of the horse? The horse just gets a sore mouth and he knows he has to turn left or he has to turn right or he has to go faster with a jab in the ribs. But he hasn't got control of the horse's brain. External things, brothers and sisters, won't control the brain. 
This won't control this. It's only by, yes, an external influence that's going to receive with meekness the engrafted word. And meekness, brethren and sisters, meekness, remember who the meekest man on earth was? And where did God put him? In the rank of people in Israel? He was the meekest man on earth. And what station did God give him? Well, to ask is to answer, isn't it? And what is meekness? It is the ability, brethren and sisters, to receive a taunt or an injury and not even have a thought of retaliation. That's why when you go up to the teacher and you give him something that he didn't see, you'll find out if he's meek or not. You'll find out by the attitude that he adopts when you show him something that is right out of the scriptures. And you'll be able to tell by whether he responds in this way or that. And you'll be able to tell, brothers and sisters, by what comes from there. Not by what he does, by his gesticulations. It's all a matter, brothers and sisters, of training the brain. Of giving it a new way of thinking. Of making absolutely sure that we have weighed the words of the scripture and we haven't made any mistakes. Brethren and sisters, that really means to us that what comes out of here is the most important thing we'll ever do, doesn't it? And let's see what else James says about it. He says in verse 8, The tongue can no man tame. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. And then he goes on to give a list of illustrations about the way in which we use our tongue. We curse and we bless out of the same mouth. Can you ever imagine, says James, a fountain giving forth both sweet water and bitter at the same place? Can you imagine a nurseryman and he tends a vine tree year after year after year and all it ever produces is olives? That's the kind of illustrations that James is giving to us about the tongue. There's two quotations we want to turn to now, brethren and sisters, to conclude our considerations about the tongue because that's all that this chapter is about. In its totality, it is all about our tongue and how we are supposed to use our tongue. And the first one we refer to is in John chapter 5. And our Lord Jesus Christ was, of course, the expert teacher. He is the greatest didascalos. He was an instructor. And he was given the tongue of the learned that he might be able to bring to bear words for every situation and to never have offended in word. Now that's not that he didn't upset plenty of people, brothers and sisters. He, set, he upset hundreds and thousands of people. But he never ever offended anybody. And that means to draw over into wrong. To trap somebody. And to make them fall. That's what the word offend means. He never ever did that. And so in John chapter 5, we read some of the instruction of the great teacher himself. 
chapter 5 and at verse 39. And he says, Search the scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. And ye will not come to me that ye may have life. I receive not honour from men. See what he's telling us, brethren and sisters? This little matter here is now to do with what comes out of a man's mouth. I don't receive honour from men. But I know you, that you do not have the love of God in you. Now how would we stand up, brethren and sisters, if our Lord Jesus Christ came into this, into this room tonight and he stood up in front of us and he said to every man and woman and young person here, I know that you don't have the love of God in you. Would you be upset? I think we'd all be rather put off, wouldn't we? We'd all be rather upset about those words if they were addressed to us. How did he know they didn't have the love of God in them? Well, he had an advantage that we don't have. That's true. He could see into their hearts. He could read their brains. He could read what was motivating them. But he tells us how he's done it. And he says, verse 43, I am come in my Father's name, and ye receive me not. Now, name, as we all know, is indicative of authority. I have come in my Father's authority and you don't receive me. And what had he done, brethren and sisters? What had he done? What did they ever see that he did with his hands? He performed miracles, but he didn't need hands to do that. The only thing really that they saw about him was what came out of his mouth. And he says, when I speak to you, I speak to you with my Father's authority. And I don't carry on and I don't say, well, my view is this and I believe that and my opinion is this and if you don't believe what I believe, you're left on the bus stop. He didn't say that. He said, this is the way it is. This is how it is. It's black and it's white. There's no shades of grey. You're either with me or against me. You can't serve God and mammon. And they all wondered at the gracious words that came out of his mouth. Now what was his secret, brothers and sisters? He said, I know that you don't have the love of God in you because you don't teach in the same way that I do. Remember when they first heard him, heard him speak? They all said that they were amazed because this man speaks with authority and not as the scribes. You see, the scribes said, well, we've done a study of this and we've come up with this conclusion. But our brothers over there, this other bunch of the Sadducees, they've got another view. And this bunch, of, they've got another view. And these fellows over here, they've got another view. And all they did was discuss everything and settle nothing. There was no authority. It was only reduced to a bunch of man's opinions. And as soon as we reduce the word of God, brothers and sisters, to a bunch of man's opinions and we go around to each other and say, fantastic brother, 
You know what a brother is doing when he stands up and gives his opinion, brothers and sisters? He is saying that your opinion is as good as his. And everybody settles down and they say, this is fantastic. Because this calls not upon us to think in a certain way. We can think our own way. Our lips are our own. Who is Lord over us, they said. And the Lord Jesus Christ said, I know you don't have the love of God in you. You're going all over the place. You're discussing everything. You're settling nothing. You're going in this direction. You've got all these opinions about this. There's only one way to understand any one part of the word of God. There's no other way than one. God is a unity, brethren and sisters. We may have differences, but that's not because the Bible tolerates it. That's because we haven't faithfully enough exhausted our study on it and considered it well enough. That's because we have not made the word upright. We've made it say what we want it to say. And there might be five different opinions about one verse and they might all be wrong. There's only one way to understand this word, brothers and sisters, because God is a unity. And so therefore... He said to them, I come in my Father's name and that's almost a guarantee that nobody will listen to me. If another comes and stamps his ideas on something, you'll receive him because he makes you equal with him and he gives a very lovely feeling to the thinking of the flesh. That's exhibited by what comes out in the opinions of men. And he says, by that means, by what comes out of their mouth, I know they don't love God. And brethren and sisters, we can do the same. We can tell by what comes out of a brother's mouth as to whether he loves the word of God or not. If he's all the time saying, I think, I believe, this is my opinion... The prophets that make you vain, says Jeremiah chapter 23, don't take any notice of them. If they pander to the flesh, they're false. If they give you real upbuilding, comforting, strengthening, rebuking words, they're mine, says God. If they tell you how it is, They are my representatives. They come with my authority. They're not making it up themselves. Verse 44 of John chapter 5. How can ye believe who receive honour one from another? See what he's saying, brethren and sisters? You can be in the midst of a backslapping community that actually say the truth but they say it because they want the honour of men and God won't be there. That's not his abode. He doesn't stay with that. He won't tolerate. He will not give his glory to another. He wants us to do all to his glory. How is it that you receive honour one of another and seek 
not the honour that comes from God only. And brethren and sisters, we turn back to Matthew chapter 12 to close our considerations. In Matthew chapter 12, We could start at verse 31 but we won't. Verse 34 says, O generation of vipers, how can ye, being evil, speak good things? Now what is a good thing? What is to speak a good thing? Well I could say, brethren and sisters, that the kingdom of God is coming very, very soon. Is that a good thing? Of course it is a good thing. And if that's what I say, I might say a good thing. I have no doubt, brethren and sisters, that the scribes and Pharisees who are called a generation of vipers could have easily said the kingdom of God is about to appear. They believed it. But he called them a generation of vipers. How can ye, being evil, speak good things? And then he tells them why. For out of the abundance of the heart, that's the brain, it's not this thing down just off centre of our chest, that's a blood pump. There's no emotions, there's no intellect there. It's all up here, brethren and sisters. Out of the abundance of the heart, The mouth speaketh. See what he's telling us? And then he goes on to say, or rather he said it before in verse 33, either make the tree good and his fruit good or make the tree corrupt and his fruit corrupt. For the tree is known by its fruits and the context is not what a man does with his hands or his feet it's what he says now we go on a little bit further brothers and sisters and it says in verse 35 a good man out of the good treasure of the heart bringeth forth good things and an evil man out of the evil treasure bringeth forth evil things death and life are in the power of the tongue death and life are never said to be in the power of the hands or the feet, or the biceps, or the legs. It's death and life which is in the power of the tongue. And then he goes on to say in verse 36, But I say unto you that every loose word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. For by thy words... Thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. Do you see, brethren and sisters, why God say, why, why James says that it is the tongue that will keep the body in check? And if a man does not offend in word, he is able also to bridle the whole body. 
He's telling us, brothers and sisters, that the tongue is the most important member of our body. That is externally. Because although it's in the mouth, it's an external organ by which we give vent to what's in our brain. And we cannot really give vent to what is in our brain by any other practical means than through our tongue. And that takes, brothers and sisters, earnest practice. And this chapter tells us in James chapter 3 that if we are insistent on receiving the gift of wisdom from above, it will purify, it will make peaceable, that is, we will be peaceable, and when somebody comes up to tell us you've missed the point, we will acknowledge it freely and it will be easy to be entreated. That's the wisdom that comes from above and it will be shown as to whether we are peaceable or whether we are easy to be entreated by our response by our tongue. Brethren and sisters, we don't know anything about the colour of Jesus Christ's eyes. We don't know anything about the size of his biceps. We don't know anything about his leg muscles. We don't know anything about his fingers, whether they were able to be jewellery craftsmen's fingers or whatever. We know nothing about the sound of his voice, but we know he had the tongue of the learned. And by the control of that tongue, he was able also to bridle the whole body. And James is absolutely insistent and so is our Lord Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, that this is the most important external member of our body. And may it be, brethren and sisters and young people, that we will so feed upon the word of God and that our teachers will so make the word rightly divided, make it perpendicular, Make it so that we can digest it. Make it so that we can understand it. Make it so that it will give to us a revivification in the things of God so that we will awake to holiness because in no other member is holiness more important than in our tongue. In no other member is it more important, brothers and sisters, and that if our tongue is right, we will awake to holiness and we will lie not.